Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, a podcast for readers who want something strange and exciting and writers who need something new. If you want to support this podcast, please consider buying my new book, The National Gallery. I'm extremely proud of this book because it may be my best book, and it is certainly my most personal and heartfelt book. But just because I say it's heartfelt doesn't mean it isn't full of weirdness, like sonnets about Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and elegies for my dead iPhone. Uh, For a limited time, if you buy a copy of the National Gallery directly from me, I will sign it, and I will also send you a signed copy of my previous book, The Politics of Knives, for no additional cost. So you can order the book and get your free book uh, with it at thenationalgallery.ca. That's thenationalgallery.ca. I'm also excited because it is my 10-year anniversary as an author. My first book, Ex Machina, was published in October 2009, and to celebrate, uh, now that it is 2019, as I record this, I've made Ex Machina available as an ebook for the first time. It was never available as an ebook previously, uh, and I'm giving that ebook away for free at jonathanball.com/freebook. So, uh, go to jonathanball.com/freebook, and you can sign up, uh, get. All my ex- exciting news uh, when it's you know exciting and new, uh, and other free resources that I'll just you know send you as I create them, uh, plus a free book. Um, and again, you can go to the nationalgallery.ca uh, if you want to find out more about my new book uh, and get a free uh, book as well when you order that. So three, two free books and a paid book <laughs> available to you. In any case. Um, Let's get into the show. This week, I'm presenting you with an audio uh, from my book launch in Winnipeg of the National Gallery, live at McNally Robinson, uh, alongside Gary Barwin, who is launching For It Is a Pleasure and Surprise to Breathe, his selected poetry. So uh, this is live audio from McNally Robinson. It's, again, a live event. I wasn't able to patch into the soundboard because I had the improper equipment. So, you know, McNally kindly offered me their soundboard record interface to record with but I just didn't have the right equipment with me so it's my fault that the audio doesn't sound as good as it could McNally you know McNally had it all together and I you know kind of you know screwed it up a little bit so I apologize for the sound quality of the audio but I think you know you might enjoy it anyway uh so there's a reading from me and a reading by Gary Barwin, you know, reading excerpts from the books. Uh, and then we have a discussion together with Christian Enright asking us questions. So um, that's sort of how this podcast breaks down. The last third of it roughly is uh, different from the rest of it um, with me and Gary talking uh, about our books uh, with Christian Enright asking us, you know, some wonderful questions. So, uh Take a ride, <laughs> check it out. Uh, apologies for some of the you know infelicities in the sound recording. Uh, it's neither you know anyone's fault but my own. Uh, but you know you can still make things out. It's I think it's still going to be kind of interesting uh, listen for you. But I just wanted to acknowledge that, uh, and also just note if you know you find you know the sound quality is uh, bothering you, you might want to jump ahead where uh, maybe. You know, the microphones are working a little better. So, uh, with that said, let's dive into the Winnipeg launch. My name is John, and I'm the event coordinator here at McCallie Robinson Booksellers. Before we begin, I'd like to start by acknowledging that we are on Treaty 1 territory, and that the land on which we gather is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, 
and the homeland of the Métis Nation. In addition, McNally Robinson Booksellers itself is rests on the land once occupied by the Métis community of Roostree Town. On behalf of the store, and thanks to Coach House Books and Woolsack and Wayne, it's a true pleasure to welcome you all here tonight to the Winnipeg launch of two new collections of poetry, The National Gallery by Jonathan Ball, and for which is a pleasure and a surprise to breathe, new and selected poems by Gary Barwin. The evening will begin with readings from both future poets before they both join Christian Enright in conversation. Following the conversation, there'll be a bit of time for questions, so feel free to start formulating those now. Our first reader tonight is Jonathan Ball. A poetic collage of art in the modern world, from Rilkean elegies for an iPhone to a meditation on Melville's classic, Jonathan Ball's fourth poetry book, The National Gallery, the first in seven years, swirls chaos and confession together. And this is why I always enjoy introducing Jonathan. <laughs> At the book's heart is a question, why create art? A series of poetic sequences torment themselves over this question, offering few answers and taking fewer prisoners. Jonathan Ball, PhD, author of Stranger Fiction, advocate of writing the wrong way, poet laureate. <laughs> Please join me. The publisher wouldn't let me put that bio in the book. That's my new bio. Ariel wouldn't publish it either. No. <laughs> That's my new bio I use. And you'll you'll learn, I'll read the poem tells you why I am a laureate of hell. <laughs> uh, I'm first going to read some other poems. Um, this book, uh, I'm very, as, as you know, John mentioned, this is my first poetry book in seven years. And uh, so I'm very you know, uh, thrilled about it. And uh, I also want to just give a thank you to everybody for again for you know, coming out. It's nice to see you all. And a special thank you to my daughter, Jessie Taylor, who helped me edit this book and who also uh, with two exceptions, because I just had to add a couple for time, uh, picked out these poems that I'm going to read tonight. This is the first poem, which is A.J. Caston. Televisions once tuned dead to static, then tuned blank to the ocean's azure. Now turn on to whispery blackness. Where are we going? What will this poem become? In the silent house where I type these words, there are no doors. I know ghosts haunt these rooms, the ghosts of the rooms that I murdered. Like all deathless things, they return, reaching out from dark screens, arms of static and light. This next poem is by Herman Melvin. It's all the, it's found poem with all the lines from uh, Moby Dick that contain the word salt. It's called, in order, and it's called, I am something of a salt. Once broiled, judiciously buttered, and judgmatically salted, that Himalayan salt seed mastodon, clothed with salted pork cut up into little flakes, and plentifully seasoned with pepper and salt. Something with salt seed yet lingered. There's a salt cellar of state. How they use the salt precisely, who knows? Distilled to a volatile salts for fainting ladies, bring on a great baron of salt junk. The three salt sea warriors who rise and depart with storm-lashed guns on which the sea salt cakes, dismasting blasts as direful as any that lash the salted wave, that salted down the lean Michelin. The pepper and salt color of his head, the savage salt spray bursting down the forecastle scuttle, the salt breath of the newfound sea, 
For 40 years, I have fed upon dry salted fare by salted hemp, most moldy and over-salted death. It's one of the reasons I've owned Peter's face, Gil's face, because I'm turning 40 this uh, year. The National Gallery is a very strange book in that particular way where you have got these very kind of unusual poems that on one hand seem to be totally disconnected from reality <laughs> and all things, and on the other hand are very kind of confessional and strange. It's my sort of attempt to write a normal book of poetry in the strangest way possible. Um, so you now I end up with, there's a section uh, that I'm gonna read from next here. It's called Mixed Media. The book is also organized you know, like, a, like a gallery. You know, it's different sections that have sort of poems constructed in different manners. Um, you know, I read, uh, as I said, from one where all the poems are titled after a group of seven, all of the poems don't really have anything to do with their titles. Um, this next section is called, this next poem is from a section called Mixed Media, which is all, uh, which the salt poem is also from, which is all collaged together material, textual material. So all these texts are collaged together Google searches and other you know, methods of finding text. And this poem is called, Is It True? Is it true that facts don't lie? There are many times when you wonder if something's true or not. Our expert advice will help you sort of fact from fiction. When we were young, we didn't really have a care. The hope in your eyes is worthless. They say it's easier to get forgiveness than permission, but is that true? Recent findings suggest that half the people you call your friends do not call you their friend. We swallow spiders when we sleep. <laughs> what does not kill us does not make us stronger. It weakens us, makes us easier prey. It is true that God loves all his children, but he won't admit I'm his child. <laughs> this is a very short poem from the same section of It is easier. It is easier to recognize faces and recall names. It is easier to smuggle ivory and drugs. It is easier to pass through the eye of a needle for me to shoot up and to think. It is easier to write when you are sad. A lot of the poems have that kind of weird line between like almost a joke and kind of something more melancholy. Uh, this poem, it's called Wing Machine. So it's named after the, the fast food restaurant Wing Machine in space. It's from a section called Food Court where all the poems have these, uh, these titles. So this is Wing Machine. It's the poem I was referring to earlier. Make me poet laureate of hell. Writing will still hurt, but I'll know why. After these little deaths, when big I die, grant me Virgil and Frozen Lake. Make me the poet laureate of hell. Lay out my punishments in raven speech. As devils pass me each to each to each, I'll ask my questions and receive my name. Pretend I told you the truth in my poems. Pretend that I said anything at all. Pretend that I rose high enough to fall. Make me the poet laureate of hell. And this next poem I want to read is a sonnet of sorts. It's an unrhymed song, uh, although I do have some rhyme songs in here. Uh, this is from a series of Leatherface. The poem is about Leatherface, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, they're all sonnets, uh, and all of them 
that are about the objects uh, in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that the Campbell family has created. Because if you watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, of course, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you may notice that uh, the Campbell family are creators. Uh, photographers, sculptors, chefs. <laughs> They're artists, and they must you know, recognize their artistry. Perhaps see them as a model. So this is about the, the, the first line of this is from a Rilke poem, uh, Archaic Torso of Paul, a very famous Rilke uh, song. Um, so it's the same first line. Uh, and, but this poem is, instead of being about the Archaic Torso of Paul, it's about the two corpses that have been melded together uh, at the start of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And about other things. We cannot know his legendary face with eyes that stare through other eyes, fruit fleshing right before its noble fall. We see what someone sought to see in flashes, flesh falling from bone, waxy and wet, worm melted in a crucible of earth. Come from below, O corpse of corpses, with your hands hold another's head high. And help me, help hold my attention fast to flesh and far from graves. In the background, these cold stones speak the true terror to be ageless, immortal, and here. To be not, to be, come closer. So I'm just got one short poem left and then a long poem. Um, this poem is a very long title though. <laughs> so there's another section of this book called Selfies, which are the most you know, confessional uh, poems. And each uh, title of Selfies uh, is just a very long paragraph. It's context for the rest of the poem. So this is the title of this poem. I tell the same story in another book where I break character and address the reader. But I tell it differently there, even though this is a true story. The story is true, and yet I have two different versions of it. But with my whole heart, my whole mind, my life, I swear to you that both are true. So what can we say about truth now? How can we live in this world? So that's the title. <laughs> That's one of the shorter ones in this So here's the point. When I was a child, psychotic, I thought that I was Jesus. I found a dead bird one day and tried to bring it back to life. I put my hands upon it, took it into my hands, and it moved. Flesh stirred and I thought, here I am, here it is, my miracle at last. Divinity in this bird this child of God of the blue, blue sky. The bird twisted, shedding its flesh, and burst into a ball of squirming maggots. I threw it down back to the earth. I have not believed in anything since. I believe in nothing now. So this last uh, piece I want to read is, is a longer poem. It's the last sequence of the book, because you know, it's, as I say, a series of sequences. There are, um, Actually, I'll read one other little short piece. This is from a longer section uh, that I was just going to mention. But I'll just really briefly read this piece of a long poem called iPhone Elegies, which is based on Duino's, Duino Elegies by Rilke. So some of the lines in here have been lifted from uh, or transformed from a Rilke, uh, Rilke's poem. Also, we have a, a reference to that phrase. And 
as I say, these are LGs for a dead iPhone. Atrocity smiles for my photos. How can I help loving but smiles at me and offers up its fake flesh for my feed? Rookie only wrote two elegies at Duno Castle, later grammed the rest. The nearest moment so far from us always, he said. Always, we pull away from what we see and what sees us. Did children reach for us, we flee. Rilke, without iPhone, but still profit of our age. Murderers are easy to understand, he wrote. Who can endure these half-filled human masks? Better Leatherface, whose mask masks nothing. At least it is full. We only dream of existing. How we squander our hours of pain, writing poems, hiding from the world in the darkness of the deathless age. It takes more than one life to become who we are. We have just one dull life to sharpen bladed souls. So that poem sort of leads into this long sequence, as I said, uh, which ends the book. So um, the book really started to come together. As I say, you know, Jesse helped me do a lot of editing work on this book, but it also sort of um, started to come together when I you know, started writing this long poem, which I didn't finish till this last sort of sequence of poems that I finished. One of the first things I wrote where this book started to cohere as a book to me was the last page of it, uh, which you know, I'll get to, which you know, mentions Jesse. So again, thank you to Jesse. And uh, you'll come and see she has a cameo at the end of this book. Uh, and this sequence, I'm going to read this, this long poem, uh, so it's in a few sections. It's called, Help Me Because I Never Learned to Hide. I walked three hallways. In the first, I carry a cup of blood and seek my name. In the second, the moon cannot see what it loves. In the third, I hold hands for the torch and its shadow. I promise to meet you, but I'm gone. A writer writes to build a world he hates, less than the one he knows. He flees the world, flees into the page, but once there, finds no freedom. Unlike the horrors of the world, the horrors of the page are all his fault. Standing inside the page, standing outside the world, after all, he sees beauty. But that beauty is lost in now. He stepped out of it, into the page. So I stand here now, inside this page, frozen in a deathless field, slashing my words across its bright snow, burning myself for heat into feel. I seek and find God in the snow, bleeding like a cut dove in the snow. Paper cuts the pain I need hymns inward. To sing this song, I cut my throat with God. Midway through the journey of my life, I found myself inside a snowbrick field. I saw far in the distance my one life. I found myself inside a snowbrick field and vowed I would return to what I loved my daughters and my son, my dark lines. Hold those I love until they pull away. Help me, my mind betrays me all the time. I found myself inside a snowbrick field. To step out of the page, regain the world, takes everything anyone ever gave. Takes every word a song could ever scream. Come with me on this long walk into cold. Come with me as the endless hallways twist, the hallways turn into snakes, Swallow me. Come with me, all my children. Follow me. Follow me into the den of teeth. 
follow the snake mouths in my eyes. My hands are breaking. Please hold my glass hands. Hold them together. Hold my brittle fingers. Hold me tight until my poison sleep. I walk through hallways now, I know my name. I walk through hallways, each ends in a child. I walk until my song melts under me. Help me, teach me how to love this serpent. Help me, hold my face against its scales. Help me, there was never any world. Help me, my daughters, help me know myself. Help me, my son, help me sing this song. Help me write my way back to the world. The song has snared me, help me. Help me, please. A voice must carry it below the ice. I have to drown this song or I can't live. I have to touch the world with hands again. It looks so tempting, held so far from me. I see it with the eyes grown from my palms. Help me be the father that won't die. Help me because I never learned to hide. If my daughter walked beside me, she would shiver in the cold. She would hold tight to herself. She would provide the perfect model how a person should be. You should face the world and shiver. You should hold tight to yourself. You should walk close beside someone. Trust that someday it will warm. Thank you. The author of 22 books of poetry and fiction, our next reader, Gary Barwin, is a writer, musician, and multimedia artist from Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of the nationally best-selling novel, Yiddish for Pirates, which won the Leacock Medal for Humor and the Canadian Jewish Literary Award. It was a finalist for the Governor General's Literary Award and the Scotiabank Killer Prize. His poetry includes No TV for Woodpeckers, many chapbooks, some with his own Seraph of Nottingham editions, and A Cemetery for Holes, a poetry collaboration with Tom Prime, and Mutter Tongue, a CD recording with Lillian Allen and Gregory Betts. A new novel, Nothing the Same, Everything Haunted, will appear for Random House in 2021. For 35 years, Barwin has been opening up new ways of being in poetry. In this new and selective collection, there is a pleasure and a surprise to read. Barwin and his editor, Alessandro Porco, have drawn from his extensive writings in previously published books, chapbooks, small press works, magazine and journal publications, including unpublished and uncollected works, to create this category-defining book. It's my great pleasure to welcome Gary Barwin. Um, and thank you all for, for, being, for being here. I just got a copy of this book like an hour ago, so I'm resisting the temptation to sort of like to fondle it or to lay a bunch out and roll it and stuff. I mean, maybe it would have made for a more interesting reading perhaps, but we'll do, we'll do it again. Inverted comma, question mark, colon, comma, Inverted comma, colon, comma, inverted comma, semicolon, comma, inverted comma, inverted comma, semicolon, semicolon, inverted comma, comma, colon, 
comma, period. That's um, Shakespeare's sonnet um, number 18, but then all those difficult words <laughs> make it more difficult. Um, it's a strange thing to read. This is, so this is um, new and selected, so it's really a strange thing to read, to like to look into the, uh, the abyss of one's own past and to kind of reckon with oneself in a, in a way. Um, but here I am, fearlessly going to do it. No, so it's, 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 it's a range of voices of things that are, are me that are not me, or that are what, what I was, or you know, when I, where I was thinking about. Or perhaps, even, or even more, man, I'm still writing about the same thing <laughs> for 35 years. So that's, it's an interesting, um, it's been an interesting thing uh, for me. So this is the first, um, the first poem in my first full-length book down into the streets. Have you ever been outside on a summer evening when it is cool and the stars are out and you perhaps are walking beside a hedge of tiny leaves and you feel a cool breeze on your face and the leaves begin to rustle? Perhaps in the distance a car drives by and you hear a frog in the grass, maybe the sound of crickets. And perhaps you are walking beside a beautiful woman in a floral skirt who tells you that there is a purpose to life that only certain people may know what it is. And suppose you reach into the sky with your mile-long arms and move the stars aside a bit. And with your tongue, that is longer than your arms, lick the vault of heaven until in one spot a little of the color comes off and light comes bursting through and both of your bodies are instantly bronzed with a perfect tan. And a beautiful woman snaps her fingers and causes the flowers in her skirt to suddenly bloom. And all around you there are strange, gentle-eyed animals that you have never seen before as you dive into the summer air floating about crowds in the city to release thousands of your business cards that fall like identical snowflakes down into the streets. I looked up, that was from 1980, 1985, and I looked up uh, you know, what was going on. First version of Windows, new Coke. Uh, so, it helped me, it helps contextualize uh, you know, the, uh, what, I'm, what I'm talking about. Do you have law laws here? Is it, yeah? Is it? Used to. Used to, so. I just feel like, you know, uh, uh, Donald was referring to Rilke, and so I just need to, I'm leather-faced, so I need to refer to my cultural touchstones. <laughs> a rabbi, a schoolboy, and a tailor walk into a bar. Both the rabbi and the tailor order a drink, but the schoolboy tells this story. He says, imagine yourself to be a leaf. Imagine yourself to be turning gold. The sound of your hands as they move through water. The sound of your feet walking on dry land. Once, when I was 17, I did not do my homework. I became a leaf on a tree in a shopping center. I became a discount store. On Tuesday, I was selling shoes, videotapes, German sausage. When a tall blue bird was born from my shoulder blades, became light as a five or six carried by air. I was a leaf turning onto a highway from a street in the suburbs. I was a blood cell spinning in the veins of my tongue. I read the menu out loud, pronouncing each word. The wind picked up signals from Jupiter, and a rock that was on my chest became a family of four and a group of stars in the constellation Orion. I never wanted to become a mortal, but it came to me so clearly. I parked my car behind Loblaws. I knew I would never die. (laughs) 
Ireland. Here's a poem by the tree. I was so happy when this was published. It was John J.W. Curry, uh, the Toronto Micropress publisher. Published. This was the first thing I had published. Published it in. So he rubber stamps every every each different um, each different book. So this was rubber rubber stamp. Tree. All this holiness. I'm asking for holiness, like the one tree over which it rains in the forest flames. Jing Jing locks. Zhu Yang is Jing Jing is locks one by one. The big boat, the one with the flapping sails, it has a big lock, and he is changing it, lifting it onto a wagon drawn by horse. No, he's putting it onto his Chevy hatchback on driving it away. One he stops for gas, the guy who pours gas in says, Whilst up in the back, I gigantic lock. Yes, Julian says, from the damp boat. With enormous sails that flapper, flapper in the wind, when the wind blows. Our gas station has oil lock, too, the guy says. See that one, see that on the glass door, with a little cable for the cable to go behind. Then you'll turn it one boy, and then the other boy back to where he started, and pull that K and out again, and then that door has locked, and I can go home. I take off my boots, unzip my glove overalls, and take them off. Then I say to myself, might as well have a bear, and maybe I do or else some eggs. Julian drives a boy, sinks to himself, the lock to the front door, the lock to the fishing box, the lock to the downstairs freezer. Somewhere, someone is oiling the walls of their room. He's preparing for philosophy. I hope I never make uh, that mistake. <coughs> this, was a, this was from the very first chapbook that I um, ever published with my, um, well, that I ever published, but it was with my uh, Seraph of Nottingham Press, which I still publish things with. And my father really did have, he was, med he was a medical student, and he really did have a jar. He had a series of jars. Um, which had fetuses in them. They were animal fetuses. He was a gynecologist. It wasn't just a, like a, <laughs> some, you know, some puppies have trained princess and he had fetuses. And he, was a, he was a gynecologist and so he had, um, he had uh, these jars of fetuses. And I assumed, um, it says this in the, in the poem, but I assumed that 
um, they were human because I didn't know any better. And I assumed that I, I'd heard that my mother had had a miscarriage before she had me, so I always assumed that one of them was my brother, the one that, the one. That, so that's where this comes from. <laughs> if Edwin, my eldest brother, had ever been born, he would have been a year older than me. My father, a medical student, had to study beneath the stairs. His window, a basement window, and his specimens sealed in jars. A tiny fetus in a translucent sack. A small fetus, pale-fisted, white. Edwin. I point him out to my friends. Look, that's Edwin, my older brother, if he'd been born. I think he would have been taller, thinner than me, and with short hair. Edwin, going before me, growing taller, moving through the neighborhood. He'd score goals, talk to our neighbors at their side door. I know Dad would have taken Edwin to the golf driving range and then let him come with to the pub. Dad sawed down a club for him in the garage, then taped up the handle, my father showing him how to hold it. Line up your thumbs like this, Edwin. Down at the other end of the street. Hey, that's Edwin's younger brother. Okay, you're it, one, one thousand, two. A miscarriage. They tried to have Edwin before they had me. It was just like he went away to a foreign country. And though he was alive, we never saw him. Just knew what he was like. And that baby in the jar was Edwin before he was born. And what he left behind him when our thoughts of Edwin grew bigger. I miss him. I think of all the times we could have had, all the things I could have asked him. What would it have been like to have him in the next room with his door open doing homework? I don't know what happened to him after we moved to Canada. My father didn't have a study until we moved again. There wasn't a shelf below the window like before. I still imagine Edwin back on that shelf with some kids looking in. They go to the street to play football until they're called home for supper. In the end, they say, all poems are about hope, but out of money, I took this poem's hope and pawned it. I spent the money on a rhyming dictionary and went home and looked out the window. From my apartment, you can see Hamilton Mountain, which is really just an escarpment, like a mountain without hope. It has no peak. Then I found a compartment in my body I'd never found before. I twirled my nipple, L32, R47, L19, and opened it. WTF, inside me was hope no bigger than a grain of sand. Hope is the perfect thing if you have no money and want 2,000 of something. But there was only a single grain and I held it like a baby, a single tiny baby. I ran into the street, or I first ran down the hall and into the elevator, pressed the appropriate button, waited, descended, exited, then ran, down the, then ran across the lobby, across the parking lot, and then into the street where there were 1,999 other people each holding a tiny grain between their fingers, and we just looked at each other. <laughs> uh, um, there was a, a writer that I, I met on, on, online, um, and uh, she was telling me, her, her family was Hungarian, and they were Holocaust survivors, and she told me um, when um, she was, because they spoke in Hungarian accents, or her parents and her grandparents, they spoke in Hungarian accents. So when she watched Sesame Street, and she'd see the count, you know, one, two, three, wonderful, 
that that guy, she assumed that he was also a Holocaust survivor because he sounded like her parents and grandparents because he had a, that Hungarian Transylvanian accent. And I found that so you know, ridiculous and sort of funny, but also really touching that this little girl was sitting in front of this television and seeing this guy speak to her, right? Like this, so, I, I, um, so I wrote a poem um, about it. Sesame Street's Count is my grandfather for Jennifer Glasser. What are the numbers, Count? Your Transylvanian cackle seems Yiddish to me. Your unhinged delight. Your bitter joy enumerates the world. An inventory of what's there. What hasn't been destroyed. The time I'm waiting. The time I'm waiting for those numbers in your kitschy voice, which is my parents, grandparents' voices. You're counting, chanting the numbers. Shema at the Warsaw Ghetto. The empty chairs at the Seder. Numbers on my grandfather's arm, my grandmother, my grandmother's, to count the future with thunder, to remember the past with lightning. I see you count a survivor, the chortling paradox that there are things and that they can be counted. I was thinking, um, Jonathan. Jonathan was very kindly acknowledging Jesse's daughter. Um, about, about work. So I was thinking, I remember going with my son to Coach House Press, where I had a, one of my books was being published, and I, I, was I was taking somebody on a tour, and right as, we looked in, right as we looked in the window, the actual cover of the book was coming off the press. We could actually see it. It was so cool. And I was so excited. So, I, and so then we went in, and the, all of the guts of the book were sitting on the floor of Coach House. It's ready to be assembled. And my son said, hey, Dad, why don't you just take all of that stuff home right now and stick it in the basement where you know it's going to go anyway. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> Don't ask me if it's true that where the stuff is going. <laughs> a baboon rents a canoe, then smashes into the moon. Fragments of moon, baboon, canoe rain down. As you breathe, your lungs fill with moon, baboon, canoe. Moon, baboon, canoe inside each breath. People who I love, you say. People about whom I care. Moon, baboon, canoe. Moon, shoelace, canoe, baboon, baboon. The microscope sits on my desk, a gift from my father. A postcard from my mother is placed under the lens. I'm 13, love whales. The weather is beautiful, wish you were easier to see. I examine the postcard. The Brockton Motel, 1973, Highway 69, three miles south of Sudbury. I look up close at the window, and you're in there, lying on the bedspread, gazing at ceiling tiles, their strange orange stains. 1973, I dream of prehistoric elves sitting in circles, waiting for someone to invent elvish. Then some wiseacre elf opens his mouth and speaks, but none of the elves know what it means. You weren't really there in the window of the Brockton Motel. Under the microscope, you were colored dots, fields of inky texture. I'm a whale. Inside me are elves, patiently waiting, rusting like leaves. I'll never love anything as much as I love this poem. Um, John, in addition to being an excellent writer, Jonathan's also a really brilliant critic and wrote some really nice things about his poem, so I'd like to read it for you. Shopping for deer. I went shopping for deer. There were no deer. The shopping cart 
became the deer. I brought it home, climbed inside, and turned off the lights. The seasons changed. I lived on Earth. Sometimes the bright sun shone. I became old. When I die, I will remember the deer. I will remember its wheels and antlers. I will remember its flesh and lightning, its wound and silver bones. Planting consent. I carried my TV down the stairs, buried it on a hill with a beautiful view. I spring a small antenna sprouted in that place. Somewhere under the earth were sweet clouds and the wind beats of birds. I, oh yeah, I can, I can, I can, I can take a poem based on Milka too. So just, just saying. Nevertheless, <laughs> I laugh whether or not the gobsmacked laugh. Me with a snorting face and short memory. I laugh whether the foxes which began so soberly ended snuffling and begging. And I laugh myself whether or not the blind beer garden apes were proud to be judges, or whether the cowardly midwinter boys may be bedridden with poison-soaked weapons because its luck filters pretty things, and fate gives us broken hands to hinge and squeal and kiss, and if the heart in the body is torn up, tore up, cut, and restocked, still the beautiful laughter remains, dusky and firefly, left with the ashes. Um, this is a translation of um, a song, and it's horrifyingly um, I wrote it a while ago, but it's horrifyingly appropriate, I think. And just but in terms of, I don't cite um, Leatherface, but I cite um, these are the characters in the Partridge family and in the Brady Bunch. Just, I don't know why they weren't in the Bible in the first place. It really is. King David, come on. By the late night, the cup window, we sat and wept when we remembered ourselves. We hung our TVs upon the air in the midst thereof. For there our captors required of us songs. They that seized us required of us joy, saying, sing us one of the songs of Keith. How shall we sing Danny's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Chris and freedom, may my right hand forget how to make dog shadows by lamplight. If I do not remember thee, Tracy, in peacetime, may my tongue cling to the roof of the bus as it goes on tour. If I prefer not glory and justice above my chief joy, Remember, O'Keefe, what Carol and Mike did in the days of fire, who said, tear them down, tear them down, tear them down. O de facto American children doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you, he who taketh and dasheth your babies against the screen. And just to uh, finish, I've got a few new poems. I think I'll just, um, I'll just read. Um, one of the amazing things about having a book edited is the copy editor says, hey, you know, Gary, you know, you said that World Naked Gardening Day happens on May 6th, but it doesn't happen every year. It changes. It's the first Sunday in, in, in uh, May, so you need to change the poem because it's inaccurate. <laughs> so change it, I did. Stars originate from the same place as bells. What should I be thinking about? Apparently this year, May 6th is World Naked Gardening Day school or a uterus, someone writes. The politicians would protect the children inside. A cup can, a mouthful of water, snowball, shape of a hand. After 9-11, I remember writing something sarcastic intended to be Zan, a poem about not being able to find the sock. But I realize it's true. 
anytime I've lost a sock, someone's being shot even when I haven't lost one. Once my son went with my in-laws and the rabbi to the lake, cashless, dropping bread into water, casting off sins. Why am I doing this, my son said. Don't believe in it. What about making the world better, the rabbi asked. Yes, my son said. My son and I, late autumn, walking under the golden leaves. On my desk, stapler, paper clips, some books, laptop open to the American news. And um, finally, I'll say at the end of these um, two um, probing examinations of the um, human condition. The door, the door. I stick my tongue in the lock. I say this and that. I say sorrow and sadness. Then I climb the wall, twisting sideways. I will open the lock. I will get through. Day 14, it's getting cold. The lock is punchless. My tongue is stuck. I can taste it, a metaphor. Day 27, someone knocks on me. Who's there? It's the door. The old man, his wife, their child. Hide us, they say. Yes, I say, that's the key. And finally, this is just to say, so maybe you were expecting cold plums in an old-fashioned icebox, no? Look, I'm ventriloquizing stereotypical Jewishness because so sweet and delicious, it locates my ancestral otherness and the plums, so have them for breakfast already. Watching you eat makes me lose my appetite. Thanks very much. <laughs> portion of the evening where we have unwisely uh, decided to allow these three poets to speak to one another, and I say three, <laughs> because we have a third joining us, uh, my colleague and friend, Christian Enright. Christian is a poet from Winnipeg whose next book, Postmodern Weather Report, is to be published with Turnstone Press. He is branching out into other forms and is at work on a play, as well as a slew of short stories. Winnipeg has permeated much of his work and is a labyrinth of varying degrees in his mind. As I clumsily ring microphones for these people, please join me in welcoming Christian Enright, Jonathan Ball, and Gary Barnes. Uh, so just a, yeah, a couple things to note just before we start. Um, I was thinking, I read both of these collections, I'd like to thank you first of all for writing long books of poetry, which I think is a wonderful <laughs> defining gesture, it's kind of like the, the narrative poem is a wonderful wonderful thing for poetry. Um, in reading your work, um, I've, I, I was, came across a quote by a former Winnipeg poet who said, uh, there are not enough poems about Andy Kaufman, and then he said, there are not enough poems that are Andy Kaufman. And I think that the, every, your, your works were so playful, every line was so, so rich, and, and that I, I sort of tried to step back a little bit to talk a bit about, about your work in sort of maybe broader terms in certain ways. Um, but I guess my first question for you would be, um, both of you, your work uh, deals with a lot of your, your life in poetry, as does yours. Um, just to, to start off with the audience, how, how does a poem start now for you differently than it did when you started? Um, is there, has, your, has your poetics changed fundamentally? Is it, is it intrinsically, is there a, either a ritual or a sense of inspiration you always have, or is the source of poetry ubiquitous? I, I try to change it every book. I've got a friend, Brian Fitzpatrick, who his sort of thing he told me once was after he does a book, he kind of makes a, 
list in, of things he's not allowed to do anymore. Okay. Like he, like he finds the things that really worked in that book and he decides he, he can't do those things anymore. Um, and so I, I sort of started, I, I'm taking a similar approach in the sense that every time I kind of have a new book that I'm, project that I'm working with, I really try to figure out like how can I just move in a completely different direction. So you mentioned that like the poems draw in my life a lot. Like that's something I've actually avoided really specifically in my other books. Like like I've hidden things, but I've really avoided specifically right. talking about my life. And I wanted to try to do it. And where this book started for me was I wanted to write like a normal book. <laughs> but then I was like, I was like, I just proved that I could write an actual normal real book of poetry, like like normal real people. But then very quickly I got bored of that. <laughs> like I wanted to do sonnets. Like then I thought, well, I'll just do sonnets with Leatherface. And then I started to like, you know, write about my life. And then I thought, well, it's like taking a selfie. Like who really cares? What's what's interesting about it? Well, what's interesting about it to me uh, is just how like that has become our engagement with art. You know, you go to the Mona Lisa and you take a picture in front of it kind of thing like uh, and so once I started kind of skipping down that path like to me I guess like that's what's changed for me is I just uh, the more I write poetry the more I, or, or just or even fiction yeah. which is actually more what I kind of do these days like the more I just kind of find that what I'm interested in is doing taking what worked and denying myself that <laughs> and trying to force another thing uh, to work that shouldn't work. So, you know, poems about a group of seven that don't have anything to do with them. Yeah. Or, you know... You, in Clockfire, you, you joked about writing a series of plays that could never be actually yeah. performed. Is another interesting example. Yeah. So, to me, like, that's, the, like, the shift. It's, like, really conscious decisions. I, I'm making more, like, conscious decisions to do something that I haven't done before, even if it's just... And especially if I don't want to do it. So, like, I really didn't want to write about... <laughs> my life and I, you know, like I've been avoiding it and so I just started like isolating the things I was avoiding doing in poetry and figuring out like well how can I do that in a way that is feels real and engaging and interesting and different to me but still is like uncomfortable in a certain way if that makes sense okay. Same as usually, um, there I am in the field, the sky breaks, <laughs> opens up, lightning strikes. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's it's <laughs> quite consistent, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. Well, I guess the point devil's advocate is that as nimble as quotes we have to do. That's exactly what I was thinking of. I think it was a bowling ball that fell out of the sky at some point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> an apple, yeah. Um, I would say, unlike um, what Don was talking about, I, I do continue to. One of the things I do is continue to do the same thing and just push it more and try and write in the same way, but but with um, greater technical or greater emotional or or, uh, um, or greater insight. But I also add more things that I learned how to do. So I also write more kinds of poems yeah, all the time sure. and in many different ways. And the other thing I was actually thinking was, and I, I thought about this as I look back at some older poems. You could a poem that worked one way 20 years ago works differently now, the same poem, because we have a different relationship to language, sure. it works different in, in relationship to society, society's changed, certain reference, I mean, certain ways of conceptualizing the world, how things have changed around the poem, the poem sort of stays while all this other stuff, so we relate it in different ways, so, which I find is a really interesting thing now that um, I can look back at, you know, a, a poem I wrote 30 years ago and right. consider 
What well, Ulrich does. Yeah. You, I mean, it was, go ahead. So Gary, Gary has a style and a body of work, time. and he deepens and develops his style and his skills and adds to his body of work. I, I do. I like do projects. <laughs> like <laughs> I, I, I kind of like develop a style for the project, and then I abandon the style when the project's done. Like I, I feel like it's a very different way of working in, 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 in some ways. But, but I mean, to me, I would feel like, okay, I've tried that thing, now I want to try it again because I want to do it better. So I don't want to, mm-hmm. I, would, I would find it hard to let go of it because I just want to get better at it, Not, uh, but also do something different also. Yeah, yeah, yeah you get some really wild and interesting books, uh, like translations. I mean, we were talking earlier about this book, translations that you co-wrote. Um, yeah. Uh, but I feel like you are the kind of writer who has who's doing things the right way. <laughs> that makes sense? Like, oh, no. like what a writer is supposed to do <laughs> just like develop over time as opposed to like just dive bomb in with a surgical set of tools. <laughs> like do this thing and then get out of there. Well, but I mean I think there's so many different ways of approaching approaching work. I, I was doing some workshops in the last couple days in Thunder Bay and in uh, Kenora and I was supposed to go finding your voice. Right, as if it's Boston. Um, yeah. um, but I mean, what I was sort of talking about is it's not that you necessarily have, a, sometimes people have a style, but it, what a voice that idea is, it's about a, a set of concerns, a way of engaging with, um, a kind of, just a way of engaging with language and perhaps the world as well. And so it's more of a, um, an attitude in, in relationship to rather than a specific. It's, it's interesting, because one thing I was thinking about is that, that maybe is for, for a lot of poets similar that there's. Um, poets are in no way are serious about linguistic play. And I remember like I had a brilliant professor who once, and she was teaching a course on Gertrude Stein, and she said that uh, actually we play. And I was like, that's not a very formal, critical, Russian formalist type thought. And, and But I think it's true. Is there a sense of, like, because you have a poem, for example, like in talking about um, sort of procedure, like about um, getting sort of ingenuity, because you look at, like, you worked with, you know, B.P. Nichols' work. Yeah. Do, do you also find, does the act of writing, like, there's a, there's a quote from Robert, um, Robert Croach who said, um, we silence words by writing them down. Hmm. Um, do, you, do you find that language is about precision or slipperiness or, di- or somewhere between the two of them? I mean, you mentioned the poem staying the same, but at the same time, your work is also about, it seems to me at least, about a kind of, of kind of slipperiness. But the moment you talk about, the moment you express something that sounds precise or sound, yeah, then you, you also can question whether, okay, am I being seduced by it? It sounds so lovely and I, yeah. I feel so much that way, but, and then that's exactly when then you want to interrogate whether or not right. you're being seduced by the sound or by the, the comfort, whatever it is. And so actually, sometimes writing something that seems very precise and very straightforward is actually a way of doing a lot of work to actually problematize. I, I really like the, the slipperiness that you're talking about. Like when, when I did my last poetry book, The Politics and Knives, I was very happy that People were misquoting it in reviews and like <laughs> things, but I but I had specifically written it to have certain moments be misquoted. <laughs> like I had specifically written like certain things slightly different from what they would be expected. Like like I I I have tried to I really well I I found for this book my I was talking to Gary a little earlier about this, but one my big that that poem shopping for deer that you wrote. Uh, from the Porcupine of the Stars, you know your book uh, is that book was a massive influence on this book to me. This that book and also a book called The Loneliness Machine by Aaron Giovannone. In addition to like more obvious, you know, influences like you know, the and, and so on. Uh, are you, you need like 
but that poem, Shopping for Deer, and some of the things that you do in that book and in some of your other poems, especially when you kind of like take a crisp, clean image and you kind of establish this crisp, clean image and you just start complicating it and twisting it and moving it. But there's a real clear uh, dream, like poetic logic to it. And like I, I teach that poem a lot and I go through like, here's how this line has been set up in the previous like line. Like it's, it's, it's there's nothing haphazard about it uh, in terms of the, like construction poem, I don't know how you're writing it, but like in terms of like, like in terms of like the laddering effect of it, like I really find that kind of approach attractive. And so that was the thing I really was trying to do personally in this book was that play with that slipperiness that you're talking about, where it, like the, the language is leading you in this one direction, and then you just keep doubling back, and then you double back on that image and double back again, like. I really like crisp, clean images that move in this weird serpentine path, sure. and that that bring bring in all sorts of um, uh, allusions and quotes and other you know pieces of language that you just found and, and have, have determined or, or altered in various ways. No, I also noticed like a, a, as you an audience, I'll sort of bring you guys into this a bit more. Like, there's also a notion of of um, of the writer, or particularly the poet, as a kind of comedian. But there's also the issue of affect, the notion that, that poetry is intrinsically emotional. But how do you feel towards that? I mean, for, for you, we all, like anybody who writes, you know that you edit ex, you know, with extreme vigor and, and worry. It's not a simple thing as being inspired. But, but I mean, do you, do you find, do you have a certain relationship with effect as, as writers? Or, or is that kind of, is that too limited to understand poetry for you? I really want to, Stephen King once said something interesting, <laughs> which is that he wanted, his goal was to hurt the reader. And, and I, in many ways, like, that's my goal. <laughs> that's why I, I, that's why I bring Leatherface in as like a, uh, like I think that on a certain level, like, to me, when, when, when art is really working, it's doing a conceptual violence. Yeah. And it's like taking your, your ideas about how things are supposed to work yeah. or how things operate in the world. And it's just breaking, it's, it's moving to, on that path and then just breaking apart and ruining everything. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but like in, in, a, in a way that I think is kind of productive and um, necessary, if that makes sense. So I, I'm really just kind of trying to, as much as possible, take like, Control and set up and twist affect and, and like use like I really want a visceral reaction that I control to a certain degree, okay. but then after that point is not in my control. If, if that makes sense, like it, it's a very kind of weird approach. Keeps his hand reaching and strangling something. <laughs> yeah. So for me, I don't want to just do. I don't think that we just have have to do one thing. Mm -hmm. So I think you could write a poem that is. Emotional, so it, it's consoling, it's beautiful, it's uh, joyous, whatever. But at the same, so you get that. But at the same time, it's also questioning whether or not that's that's authentic, that's real. Well, how so you it, it's I said all the time. It's it's questioning. So you, you can do both at once. So you say, oh look, language is so it's such a trickster. It's so it's yeah. so sneaky. It's so. Um, but also, it, it also does this lovely thing, so you can have both things at once, and I think we're often in that state when we go into the world, we're both, I see how this is constructed, and I see how, I don't know, I'm conforming to the neoliberal version of a certain kind of sense of self, blah, 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 but yet, at the same time, we are, and we get something from that, so we can, I think we can exist in 
always in dialogue with each other, right. multiplicity of voices. And I think there's, like, there's, a, there's an association of sensibility where emotion and intellect were integral to each other, in some sense. Um, well, that's an older model than, than contemporary poetics, I guess, would use. But yeah, so, yeah, I mean, and I, I don't know that way. And I also think, I mean, there's a tendency for us to say, okay, this is, poem should do this thing, or this is what, as opposed to, well, we can try and present, like, the as many ways in as possible, yeah. um, which also then are as many ways out into the world. You, you mentioned Croce, and when I, I was, when I decided to like become a writer and really dedicate to it, was when my first university, university when I took seat was assigned seed catalog, and I had never seen something like it. And I, you know, had been writing before that point, and that was very serious in various ways. But 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 that became and, and Dennis Cooley became a big you know, a, a mentor figure to me. But what became, I think what I really started to become interested in, and in a different way I'm still interested in this, is just creating a, like with a poem or even a story, just creating a weird like location where the reader has certain things they can and can't do and certain ways that they can explore. And they've got these options inside this little kind of poetic location, if that makes sense. Like I, I want to like set coordinates in a kind of crouching manner and offer the space for play as you sort of mentioned right. before. But, it, but your collection seems is in some ways very painful. I mean, you give not just the LJ tone, but of, of almost like, it's, I was going to ask you both the question of trying to live up to poetry in a sense, that it's like you, you, know, you start off with all your idealism as a young writer and, and so much seems possible. And, and you devote, it's like devoting yourself to art, and sometimes you, you, you feel after. I mean, did I, did I do too much of that? Did I, did I miss something? Or, but, it, but it seems that rather than torturing the reader, it's something you're, you're very honest about yourself. Incredibly so. And you, and you, you make some, some claims about maybe not writing more poetry, and I thought that was well, a shame because... I, I don't <laughs> know if I'm going to be writing much more poetry, but like, I, I honestly haven't... For many years, I've been focusing on fiction <laughs> and not writing poetry. Yeah. But it doesn't look that way from the outside. You know, you're always like doing different things and what it seems like on the outside. Yeah. Um, but, but, but where it, the, the book started to cohere for me is around this idea that, like, what have I used, I started thinking like, well, what have I used poetry for in my life? <laughs> and, you know, like, what good has it been? Uh, and, you know, what has it done for me or yeah. done for others? And like, a lot of those like, and there's like, you know, the good and the bad side of it. You know, like there's that sort of withdrawal from the world aspect of creating art. Right. And there's that engagement with the world aspect. And there's all sorts of complications around it. And I really just wanted to kind of just circle around. Um, I, I feel like a lot of times when you have poems about poetry, which is what a lot of the book is. I didn't read too many of them, but a lot of the book is like poems about poetry. Yeah. Um, and I feel like there's a dark side of that that doesn't get explored as much. Like the first line of my book is, everyone in this poem is harmed. And uh, all the animals in near this poem were poisoned, and it goes on like this, you know. And, and like, so it's kind of funny and silly, but also like, you know, it has that um, that weird, you know, double-sidedness. I think uh, that I just was kind of been beginning more and more interested in. Well, you know, I think we're probably going to get near uh, getting the audience involved. Could, could I ask a question for maybe personally? It's a, rather large question, but but what do you think is for you is the, is the role of the poet? I think it just in relation to, it seems that, well, I mean, is it, it, what, what are you trying to do with language? What is, what exactly, I mean, do, do you have an implied reader or a sense that um, is, is poetry kind of liberating force for consciousness? And it sounds really, really practical. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, yes, yes. I mean, no, 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 no
in the world to read my poetry. I would yeah, tell the world. This is like a massive event for poetry right now. This is like the Roman amphitheater filled with <laughs> like docile but Latinos for licking his butter knives on each other and just like say satirical well, things would, to kill each other. But I would, I would say though that, that I think that even things that are like really popular, there's, there's, it's not just breadth of readers, it's also the depth of the experience. Right. I mean, it's like the, what is it, the docile quest, like, uh, um, you know, those who like it, like it a lot. Like, I mean, I think when people who engage with, uh, um, engage with fear, find it, no, people who engage with poetry can find it, it, it um, can have a profound effect, and I think it's one. It's a tool for examining the self, for examining language, for examining culture. For, so I think it does have a play, and I also think it's also like you know those like crazy fashions on on runways that nobody would actually wear, but somehow have some kind of gravitational force in what you might go by on, on, you know. Yeah. So there's somehow it does pull in other things, but it's on the very edge. So I I feel that's one of the functions that poetry has in the in the written world and in the world. General. I mean, I ask the question seriously because, you know, the, with the modernists, there was suddenly this, we, we, one of the artists, the people were freed from patronage to some extent, so the artist was able to fully indulge in their own isolation and kind of go off, and I guess that's what I mean is like, we have, like, in, the, in the store, I'm not going to do an obvious uh, advert for McNally, but you see on our walls uh, many, many writers, and, and the, you know, the, the, the status that, that um, intellectuals have here is, I think it's, it's a very intimate community here. So are you pointing to the skeleton over here? That's, that's <laughs> totally, I, 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 you know, I've always wanted to start at the beginning of the event by saying it's like, welcome. Yes, exactly. But no, but there is, but it's a real question. Like, I mean, because you, I mean, I'm, I'm a terrible person. That like, I, I write in isolation a lot, and I don't go to readings very much, which makes me just a like a poetry snob in the extreme. So, so I mean, it's, is it a serious question? And, the, and our laughing about it is an interesting, interesting thing. And I, perhaps I didn't ask the question precisely enough, but that's sort of why I. Well, I mean, I always go to the you know ecological model. The, the, all every different part of the yeah. of a you know the um, um, biosphere does its work, and it, it's interconnected in complicated ways, and it may not be obvious. But if you took poet, if, you were, if there were no more poets, <laughs> well, when the when the lines in the in the National Gallery is poets offer to speak truth, but they only speak of themselves, and I think like to me that kind of captures both like the abstract ideal goal of what a poet's supposed to be and like how I feel like it kind of has been down downgraded over the centuries. Um, you know, and I think there's this weird, I don't know, I feel like there's all this possibility and potential in art. And then I also feel like I don't see it uh, having its effect uh, that it should have. And so I, like to me like the double, like kind of like the love-hate relationship that over the years I've had with, yeah. you know, yeah. love, like with art and, um, uh, and and just sort of the wanting the world to care about these things sure. <laughs> that they should, that it should care about, you know, as much as maybe it cares about, you know, well, there's the, the banal or, or beer, as in Alfred Purdy's poem, um, The no. Empty Hotel, where he tries to use poetry to get a beer and that doesn't work. I think in many ways the poet's job is to just like cause trouble and to be a disruptive force. And I don't. And I feel like at best, at best, like to me, at its best, a poem is is is. It, you can't tell what's coming next. Right, right. You know, like and that's where I like Gary's poems a lot. You know, uh, is that idea that you set a line up and then there should there's an expected thing that comes next right. for the most part. It's just like a joke. Uh, I think like poems work best when they work like jokes. Uh, where you know you don't see the punchline coming, and and, and 
there's a, like it has established an expectation, then turned in a new direction. And it hasn't surprised you as well when you write well, it. Well, even Rilke, like, you must change your life. Like, that ending that comes out of nowhere uh, and just, like, turns everything in a new direction. Like, that, to me, that's where poetry becomes powerful. People don't expect to get anything out of it, but then it just, like, hurts them in a weird sort of way. I have a line in my book. It says, there's a wisecrack in everything. That's how the light gets in. <laughs> the future of poetry was all the dead poets. So, um, I guess we should probably go. You, and I, I apologize for the questions. I, I wish I knew what to ask you guys. It's uh, just all meant to No. Thank you. Colin, Colin is now my apologist, so thank you. Um, yeah, let's, I guess we. Uh, John, is it okay if we go to audience? Just if there are any. We have time for one or two questions. Yeah, oh, yeah, I guess we can. Yeah, if, if you don't. The shirt's from um, the Bay. The uh, haircut's by Sam. At, uh, yeah. Yeah, and we all steal food. Yeah. And, uh, As, as you know, half conceals and half reveals the soul within. You always want to stick your tongue into the sky, and I wonder if you were aware that, that, that of the poems you read. So many of them had that trope. Um, mostly because I was trying to avoid all, avoid all the poems I have about teeth and beer. So, but, but it's interesting that there's, yeah, there are certain kind of recurring images, and I do think it's about it's about speaking, it's about inside and outside, and what's the boundary between us well, and between the self and the not self, between language and, and yeah, I mean, absolutely. I guess I wasn't aware of it, but absolutely, it makes. Makes perfect sense. You joke that it's the door that's between, which reminds me of the interesting. Yeah. You, well, you, you ask really a question just about the, the where, where is the boundary between word and thing, which I think is a wonderful yeah. question. Yeah. That, that I wish I'd ask more questions about, but again, we only have so much time. So that would have been the question that actually would have justified all my other questions. I mean, without saliva, where are we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 It's other things. So it's, no. Sometimes that's surprising. It's surprising though what you which you find yourself obsessed about. Jessica yeah, pointed yeah. out to me a, while, a little while ago when somebody asked her um, what she sees that I do in my work a lot, or maybe I don't see. And she pointed out something that I, I like to like set something up and then like start retracting it. <laughs> you know, like set, set it sort of motion and then start like pulling the image back. Was, you know, and I, I never really noticed that I do it so extensively as I do. Yeah. In my book, Yiddish for Pirates, I remember somebody came up to me, I did a reading, and she said, you know, all this is, all this stripping, every other word is stripping, stripping here, so why so much stripping? So I didn't like it at all. So, but my husband, he likes stripping, so I bought him the book. So I that's, that's what it takes, everyone. Like, that's, that's how to do it. <laughs> poetry books, yes. Um, I, yeah. I guess, I guess, I mean, we can, I'm both, uh, end with that. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> both quotes will be filled up. Actually, before we, just, uh, first of all, thank you so much everyone for coming out. John Blox yeah. um, comments. Um, I just, I've always wanted to say this, this is, I don't know if this has been said, um, there is an institution within Mikhail Robinson, and uh, its name is John Cates, and I'd like, could we give him, yeah. just him, yeah. a round of applause. We always, we always say it's like, thank you, Mikhail Robinson, he's been, Argued as being the voice of the store. So, um, and uh, but yeah, thanks for everything you do as well. And um, thank you. So, yeah, thank you both of you guys for this. Uh, <laughs>